following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I'm thinking there's some advantages to this thing, right? Because it all depends on who's driving the ship, I'm sure. But uh, there's just a lot about a kingdom we don't get because we get so bogged down in democracy. And I'm not knocking democracy. I'm not a communist, okay? Just, but uh, we don't get a kingdom, right? Much less the kingdom of God. And I think because of that, oftentimes we relegate conversations or words or topics about the kingdom to some futuristic thing that it's just heaven. You know, it's just like the kingdom is what happens when we die and somehow God comes and he, he does stuff and all of a sudden the world's this different place and the kingdom of God comes. But throughout the, uh, the Gospels, especially in Luke, uh, Jesus makes it very clear that the kingdom he is talking about is not a far distant thing, that he is bringing in the kingdom with himself. Right? And so uh, we see that here as Jesus describes and he wrestles with trying to get a picture to help people uh, in his time and, and for us as well, wrap our minds about what his kingdom is about. Uh, because we tend to see it as something distant and, and far away, it's easy for us to think that, well, the kingdom doesn't really matter to my life. But Jesus will, will and I hope this morning we'll see, that it's very much about our life here and now. And that understanding the kingdom is vital for our, uh, our joy, and for our walk with God. So let's, uh, let's, let's look at this passage, and uh, we're going to focus on the, the last uh, three verses uh, that talk about uh, the kingdom. Uh, important word, though, that's there, it begins with the word therefore. And uh, Luke uh, uh, connects what Jesus teaches about the kingdom very much with the story that just preceded it, which is why I read the whole thing. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, He notices this woman who's been bent over with this crippling disease for 18 years. He calls out to her, Woman, you are loosed from your bonds. He goes goes over and lays hands on her and sets her free, literally delivers her from spiritual bondage. He says later that Satan has held her in these bonds. Uh, She immediately worships God, praises God for this healing, delivering miracle in her life. But the religious leaders, the synagogue ruler, is not happy because why? Well, Jesus has broke the Sabbath, right? He's violated the Sabbath. He's done what, what this leader feels should not be done. Uh, and so Jesus rebukes him. He, uh, he says, well, you know, you untie your ox and your donkey on the Sabbath. That's okay. Why is it not okay for me to set free to lose this woman from her spiritual bonds? Uh, says the final, final phrase says that it, it made them ashamed. It was embarrassing for them because it made them look stupid. And all the crowd were celebrating Jesus, right? Yay, we like this guy, right? So, and then it says, therefore, therefore, in light of that story, in light of those events, how can I describe the kingdom of God? So as we look through these two images, these two illustrations that Jesus gives to understand the kingdom, It's very important that we look at these in light of the events that just happened. Sadly, most commentaries and most scholars don't do that. Uh, They they really jump off and and see this as kind of a new topic and a new subject. Uh, And it usually gets gets interpreted this way. Well, the kingdom, because he says it's a seed and becomes a plant, it gets gets 
taught as this. Well, the kingdom starts small and gets big. End of story, go home, right? Well, it's true, right? It started with Jesus, and then there was his 12, and there was 72, and now there's millions, okay? But is that really all there is to it, right? Is that what Jesus intended to say about the kingdom of God? It starts with one, and by the end, there's, there's lots, right? Well, I don't think so. And if we look at it in light of this story that just happened and the events that he just connected it to, therefore, let me explain the kingdom. There must be more to it than just it gets really big. Right? Okay, so let's see what, what, uh, what Jesus is trying to tell us about life in the kingdom. Uh, verse 18, he says, uh, therefore, what, what is the kingdom of God like? Okay, what can I use to picture or illustrate the kingdom? What will I compare it to? And he says, It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So if I could summarize what Jesus is saying there, and we'll unpack it, but he's saying the kingdom of God is more than meets the eye. Okay, at one level it does not look like much, but there is much more to it than what first appears. Let me unpack those thoughts a bit. First of all, he says it's like a mustard seed. Now, how many of you have heard this parable before? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay, the rest of you have never read your Bible because, you know, it's a, like everybody's heard the story. We all know this, right? We all know this story. Um, probably if you haven't read your Bible, you probably know this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And so we read those words and it kind of goes by us and it's like, yeah, sure, right? However, for the Jews, this would have been horrifying, okay? Horrifying. Because to them, the kingdom of God was not like a mustard seed. Right? Uh, it's interesting. Jesus actually uh, parallels very close several Old Testament concepts about the kingdom being like a tree. Right? And the most significant one comes from Ezekiel chapter 17. And let me read it. Uh, sure, it's, it's brief. Uh, Ezekiel 17, verse 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig, a little, a little twig, from the lofty top of the cedar... And I will set it out. I will break it from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Right, so he breaks off a, a, a branch, takes it far away, and he plants it on a mountain. And there it, it, uh, it, it gets roots. And trees will do that. You know, you can branch, uh, break off a branch if you use the right process. It'll, it'll take root. So that's what it does. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Sound familiar? Well, it's almost exactly in, in elements, exactly what Jesus just said the kingdom of God is like, except for one very important difference. In Ezekiel, it is a noble cedar. In Jesus' illustration, it's a mustard plant. Okay. Uh, here's the difference. A, a cedar grows to about 130 feet. A mustard bush full out gets about 12 feet. 12 feet, right? It's only, you know, I don't, well, you can do the math how much more 120 is from 12, but a lot, right? A thousand times, right? Okay, no comparison, right? So if you're a Jew and you're going, the kingdom of God is a mustard seed, a mustard plant, what? This is wrong, okay? This is just all wrong. The kingdom of God is not, is not a mustard seed. It is a cedar, right? What is this? It is a mustard seed. Um, you know, it's kind of like saying the kingdom of God is like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Yay! Right? Uh, you're going, no, no, okay? Uh, but that's what Jesus said. 
Now, the rest of the elements are there. You know, it grows, it flourishes, it has branches, it's shade, and the birds come and nest. Okay, so all the other images are the same, but on this one. So what's the point? Well, I think Jesus is trying to say in a very uh, shocking way that goes by us, but would not have gone by the Jews who heard this the first time. The kingdom of God is not what you expect. The kingdom of God is not what you are expecting. Of course, the Jews were expecting a king who would come uh, with an army, right? Not some Jewish rabbi traveling around teaching in synagogues. They, they were looking for somebody who would be a revolutionary guy who's going to assemble a huge, massive army to bring political deliverance to Israel and reinstate uh, Israel as a nation. Uh, but Jesus is not interested in those things. And even though Jesus is performing many great miracles and doing many great things, in their mind, he, he's really nothing. Right? He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. And what, are, what are preachers? <laughs> They're nothing, right? Um, nothing significant about Jesus. Uh, and on top of that, he was a bad rabbi because right? he keeps messing with their traditions. And so let's go back to the story. We said, remember, you've got to interpret this in light of the story. What's going on in the story? Well, Jesus is teaching, preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what is he doing on the Sabbath? Well, things that were not allowed. Right? So here, not only is he just a rabbi and not a, you know, not a, not a general, uh, then he's going around messing up with their traditions. And he's breaking the rules. He's not following their customs. He's not paying attention to what it really means to be a Jew in their minds. Right? He's turning it upside down, and he's messing with the traditions. Right? Uh, as time goes on through, through Jesus' life, he does not get bigger in the eyes of the Jews. He gets smaller and smaller and smaller. At first they were interested in him, but soon they are going to be interested in him, uh, not because they want to follow him, but because they want to kill him. Right? Uh, Jesus becomes really in many ways less and less and smaller and smaller in their eyes. And he is certainly not the king they were expecting. Um, the kingdom of God is, in many, by many appearances, small and insignificant. Right? Uh, why does Jesus choose a mustard seed? Well, for one, there's some shock value in it. Right? He wants to get their attention that it's not what they expect. But also, it is, it is one of the smaller seeds of plants. Now, is it the smallest seed? You know, can you go out and find a smaller seed than a mustard seed? Yes. Uh, but the context here is that man is sowing it in his garden. So he's not comparing it to all the seeds everywhere and all the plants in the universe. He's talking about garden plants. Right? He says he takes the seed and he throws it out in his garden. Right? So of, of all your other garden plants, you know, your cabbage and your, your corn and your beans, right? the mustard seed is, is the smallest. Right? And Jesus picks that because it's part of how he wants to describe and illustrate the kingdom. The kingdom is apparently, apparently insignificant. Right? At first appearances, when people look at it, when they view it, when they see it, it looks tiny, small, insignificant. Um, and, of course, they were looking for something grand, impressive, and, um, you know, overwhelming. But Jesus doesn't come that way, right? He comes in a way that is very small, very much in the spirit of meekness, in the spirit of lowliness, in the spirit of serving. Um, what do we expect the kingdom of God to be like? Uh, as I said, this has to do with us today. Right? 
how do we view the kingdom of God? Well, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is small and insignificant. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, uh, if we look at the modern church, and again, not it's, it's dangerous to do this, the stereotype, but let's look at kind of where the church, at least in some phases, is, is today. And uh, many of you may use terms like contextualizing. You may use the word contextualizing, contextualizing the gospel. Okay, it's a good term. But oftentimes contextualizing the gospel, which means taking the message of the gospel and putting it in language and terms that people in a different culture or context can understand accurately and clearly the original message. That's contextualizing. Uh, so, so we... We try to use illustrations or examples that picture the message accurately. Uh, do we do that so that people will like the message? No. We do that so people will grasp the message. Uh, then they have the choice to either accept it or reject it. But what that's come to mean in the modern church is this. Our, our job or our goal is, is to commercialize the message. Right? That, that if Christianity is going to make any strides or advances in the world... We need to make it more marketable, more appealing, more popular. Uh, and this is nothing new. Constantine started this idea way back about 300 A.D., right, when he said, we're going to make Christianity popular. And the way we're going to do that is you either follow Christ or we kill you. <laughs> okay? And it worked. <laughs> it worked. Everybody became a Christian, right? And Christianity became the majority religion. And it, it had power and influence in politics, right? And that went really well, right? Look at anything about church history. It was kind of a disaster, right? Because while it was popular, it was no longer really the powerful force that it was before, right? And so it didn't work to make it the majority. In fact, it just ended up watering down the church. Uh, Modern-day version, you know, we don't do that anymore. We don't threaten people. Um, uh, we don't, you know, we don't... Uh, it would be fun to try, but, but we don't do that, right? But instead, what do we do? Do we still hope to make Christianity a majority religion? Well, in many circles, yes. Right? Many, many people have this idea that that's what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about overwhelming the world with Christians so that we, we get to be in charge of everything. That that's the kingdom of God, right? When Christians rule, the kingdom of God has come. In fact, there's whole theologies built around that, right? That that's the goal of, 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 of God's plan, that the Christians would someday take over the world. Heaven forbid, right? Because every time Christians have been in politics, it's been bad. Okay, I'm just saying. It's been bad, right? Um, and this is how the church does it today. You know, so we're trying to make the, the gospel popular. And how do we do that? Well, we do that ultimately by changing the message. Okay, we're no longer contextualizing the message. We're picking and choosing parts of the message that we know people will like, and we're ejecting the part of the message that is not popular. So you know, people nowadays are not real crazy about talking about things like sin, death, and judgment. That doesn't sell well. Right? Um, I'm reading through the biography of David Brainerd. Back in the 1700s, what sold was hellfire and brimstone. I mean, these guys lived and breathed judgment, right? We don't talk about that anymore. In fact, we don't even talk about sin. Right? We eliminate those things from our, vo our vocabulary, and we are selling a gospel that's all about God's love. Right? Now, is God loving? Absolutely. Is that all there is to God? Definitely not. Right? 
Uh, and in fact, what happens when you talk only about God's love, what, is, what becomes of the cross? What well, becomes a waste of effort? It's meaningless, right? Jesus' death on the cross means nothing if there's no such thing as sin and judgment, right? It just means that Jesus was pretty unpopular, made some bad choices, right? Uh, and that's not the message. That is not the message. So, as in the case of, I hate picking on people, but I like picking on this guy, Rob Bell. Um, not exactly the, you know, the epitome of evangelical Christianity, left his church, began preaching a message all about God's love, and now he's on a roadshow with Oprah Winfrey. Right? Why? Well, because church is not cool, but Oprah is. Right? So you ditch church because it's not effective, and you join Oprah because you're going to be popular. You're going to market the gospel to an audience in a way that they will buy it. Right? Jesus says that's not the kingdom. Right? That is not the kingdom. The kingdom comes apparently insignificant and small. It is a mustard seed. It is not a mighty army. It is not popular. It, is not, uh, it does not sell well. Uh, well, why? Well, it does not sell well because at the very heart of the message is what? It's the cross. Right? It's the cross of Christ. Uh, Jesus came as king, but he did not come as they expect. He did not come in large and noble ways. He came ultimately uh, to die. Right? Jesus is the crucified king. If the, if the Jews and the Jewish leaders did not think much of him as a rabbi, uh, what did they think of him when he was hanging on the cross? Right? I'll tell you what, they, they think of them the same thing as the world does today. They say, how can you follow a teacher who died such a horrible death? Right? How can you give your life to somebody who died as a criminal? Right? There's no glory in that. There's no power in that. It looks weak. It looks small. It looks insignificant. But that is the way of the kingdom, right? The way of the kingdom is not coming with power and with armies. The way of the kingdom is coming through suffering and sacrifice meekness and serving. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. Right? It comes in a way that is not impressive, that does not bowl people over. In fact, it is quite easy for people to toss it aside as nothing. Right? But that's the heart of the message. Right? Jesus is the crucified king. In his greatest moment to the world, it looks the most like defeat. Right? It looks like he lost. But, of course, the story doesn't end there. And that's the point Jesus is making. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. But it doesn't stay a mustard seed, does it? It is like a mustard seed that grows and becomes a, a large plant. Um, and the emphasis here is not on the growing part. In fact, the words that are used and the way it's structured, uh, it kind of almost skips that part. The growth is necessary, but it's not about the growing so he's not saying here that the kingdom of God is this gradual process over 2,000 years. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is a seed, but that seed becomes something substantial. Now, of course, when you compare it again, you compare the mustard bush to the cedar, it's still, it's still pathetically small. But, but that's not the comparison Jesus is making here. Because remember, the seed is not sown in the forest. Where is it sown? In the garden, right? 
So the comparison is with all the plants in the garden, what does the mustard bush look like? Well, you know, compared to lettuce, three inches, mustard bush, 12 feet. Big, right? Uh, your tomato plant, maybe two feet. Mustard bush, 12 feet. Okay, it is impressive in the garden. It is impressive. In fact, actually, you wouldn't want this thing in your garden because it would take over the whole thing, right? It would, it would expand out. And it would crowd out the whole rest of the garden, right? It is substantial given the right comparison. Uh, so much so that it says that the birds of the air, and he, he draws on that image from Ezekiel, the birds of the air come and they land in its branches and they build its nest there and they find shelter and shade and protection in that bush. Um, this, the kingdom may start in ways that seem and appear powerless, but, but that's not what the kingdom is. In that seed, in that tiny little insignificant thing, there is living a whole entire tree, right? Uh, when it does its work, the kingdom of God becomes something large and substantial, a place where you can make a, where a bird can make a home, right? In the shade and shelter of its branches. Um, I, I used to um, I used to love sunshine, right? When I lived in Colorado, and when the average temperature was way colder than here. Bright, sunny days were, 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 were amazing, you know, because you'd be freezing cold. you go out, and the, the sun would strike you, and it just felt so good, right? The last thing you wanted in Colorado was shade. Thailand, however, is a different story, right? And I've come to really despise, at least here, despise direct sunlight, right? And now I get why the Thai people just cover up everything and carry umbrellas when it's 100 degrees, right? Because the sun beating down on you is not comfortable, Uh, And there's something great and refreshing about a shade of a tree, right, that protects you from that intense sunlight. And that's the picture here. Uh, The birds come and they find shelter and protection. They find refuge in this tree. So so this tree is the kingdom, and we are the birds, right? We are the ones who come into it uh, and find shelter and refuge and protection there. Uh, again, back to the story. This woman uh, had been bent over. Uh, Jesus said she was under a bondage of Satan for 18 years. Jesus comes and through his power and authority, through his death, which brought victory over Satan, he sets this woman free. And she what? She rejoices. She praises God. Right? And she has come into a place of refuge uh, under God's protective care. Um, she has, uh, through faith, uh, we assume she had faith. The Bible doesn't really say, but we can assume she, uh, she, she had faith in God. And through that, she comes into God's kingdom. And there's really three things that this tree pictures. First, it is a refuge and a shelter. It, it is a place of protection. Okay? God's kingdom is a place where God watches over you and he protects you through the power and authority of Christ who has conquered Satan. And so you don't have to fear that Satan is going to bind you anymore. Okay, he may have shackles on you that, like we said last week, you need to get set free from. But once he sets you free, you are free. Right? Once you are in Christ, he is giving you increasing liberty, freedom, and deliverance. Second thing, when the woman was set free, she found joy. Right? She rejoiced. She praised God. The kingdom of God is a place of joy. And even though it doesn't use the word here, I can't imagine that she didn't experience or feel some sense of joy. Right? What is joy? Well, 
Joy is a lot of things, but one thing it is is the feeling we get when we have been held captive and we are now set free. If you, you know, uh, you you hear stories, we know, we know there's people who have been detained in places like North Korea recently released. Okay, I'm pretty sure there was some joy that went with that, right? Joy is being set free. This woman experienced joy as she was delivered and set free from her bondage. Um, Third thing, uh, God's kingdom, this tree represents a place of God's presence, it is a place where the birds come and they dwell. They make their home, right? We, uh, the kingdom of God is very much living and dwelling, abiding continually in God's presence, right? Under his care and protection, right? So, so the kingdom of God, as Jesus describes it here, is something that you and I are invited into now. It comes through uh, weak and insignificant ways through the cross, but what that, what that accomplishes, the power of the cross is a place of refuge and shelter, living in God's presence for us here and now today. And if you don't want that now today, right, if you don't long for and hunger for life of joy in Christ, of living in his presence, of experiencing his care and protection, if that's not something you're interested in today, I don't think you're going to be more interested in heaven, right? Because um, honestly, you need it more today than you will then, right? You need it today, right? And that's the kingdom. Jesus is saying, I, through my death, have made a place for you right here and now where you can be in close, abiding relationship with, with the Father, right? As a bird finds shelter in its wings, a place where there is joy and refuge and deliverance and freedom. Um, so that's the first picture. Second picture, we're almost out of time, so I've got to do this one real fast. Um, and again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, the picture here is of, of, of leaven or yeast. You know, back in those days, they, they didn't use yeast so much as they used a lump of sourdough. Uh, basically, bacteria-laden dough, right? Yum. And they would take this bacteria-laden dough, and they would stir it into existing um, dough, uh, flour, and it would eventually contaminate the whole lump with the, the bacteria and cause it to rise and make nice fluffy bread. Sounds so appetizing. Yum. Right? Uh, this, this is specifically three measures of flour. It would have been about 50 pounds. Right? So the picture, again, is of something fairly small, one small lump of, of uh, you know, leavened bread mixed in with 50 pounds. And, and he says specifically that it's, it's hidden. And some translations use the word mixed in, but really it's literally hidden. You tuck it away inside, and in time that... That leaven influences, um, it gets all through the whole, the whole thing, and the whole thing becomes leavened, becomes ready to, to turn into bread. What are those pictures of? Well, a couple of things. It is a picture of the invisible influence of the kingdom. Uh, I wish, oh, how I wish, you know, that God was a lot more obvious, right? That, 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 that God came to me and the kingdom confronted me in more real and tangible ways, right? 
I remember one time as a kid just crying out that God would like show up live and in person. And I'm pretty sure if he had done that, I, I would have been, I mean, I would have gone all out for God, right? Uh, but that's not how God works. The kingdom is invisible, right? It is largely invisible. And it is, uh, it is largely the hidden power of the Spirit and the Word working inside our life. Right? And it's, it's quite subtle. Right? It's quite invisible. It works its magic in, in silent ways. Um, is, is God transforming you? Well, sometimes it may not feel like it, right? Some days you get up and you feel like, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and I just feel like nothing is happening. You ever feel that way? I feel like, you know, I just don't get it. Well, the kingdom is working under the surface, right? The Holy Spirit with his word is working in your life in very subtle ways and he is influencing you and shaping your life deep within. Uh, now, that's not to say that there's not things we should do. Uh, and Scripture teaches in plenty of places that we are very much a part of our growth process. But if you're waiting to get zapped by God, and sometimes he does that, and pray for that. I mean, I'm praying you all get zapped. But uh, more often than not, it is hidden. It is silent. It's invisible, right? And we don't necessarily experience a lot of dramatic things. Does that mean you're not growing? No. Right? If the Holy Spirit is in you, if you are allowing his word to come into your life, there is a silent force going on deep inside you, transforming your life, which is the second principle. Uh, it's an influence that transforms your life. It comes in, it's hidden, it's subtle, but it's changing everything about you. It is transforming you more and more into the likeness and image of Christ. Uh, and for those of us who are older, you know, if, you're, if, you've, if you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 60 years, you can look back and over 60 years, praise God, you should be able to see some change, right? If it's been 60 years and there's no change, then you should worry, right? Because um, we should see change. We should see God transforming us. It's not instant, right? Your habits, your thoughts, uh, the things, the things in your life that are out of control, as we said, those, those bonds that Satan still has in your life, they don't all disappear instantly and immediately. But slowly God is doing his work, setting you free, releasing areas of your life that need changing, that need to come under his lordship and his rule and his power. Um, so it's invisible, it's transforming. Thirdly, it is pervasive. Right, in other words, it's changing everything about you. Again, back to the story. Um, when, when Jesus healed, uh, they didn't like it that he healed on the Sabbath. Not because they were against healing, but they didn't like it because they felt it was work. Right? And one of the things about the Jews is they had this, uh, and, and it comes from the law, they didn't invent this, but there's this very significant divide in Judaism between the sacred and the secular, between what was holy and what was common. So, and, and their worship uh, centered in the temple. And in the temple, God dwelt, right? And because God dwelt there, God was holy. It was set apart. He was unique. He was not of this world. And therefore, nothing that came into the temple could be common. Everything that came in had to also be holy to revere and honor who God was as a holy God. So all of Judaism got set up with this this divide between what was holy and sacred and what was common or secular. 
And if something was holy, it could only be used for the holy. So if you, uh, uh, if you had an object that had been in the temple, uh, a utensil, even a, a very mundane utensil, if it was in the temple and used for sacred service, you couldn't take it home to, like, clean out your barn. Right? It was stoning for that one for sure, right? Because you're taking it with something holy and using it for a common purpose. And vice versa. You dare not take uh, anything common... Uh, like work, right? Because work was part of the six-day common part of life, and bring it into what was holy and sacred. And so that's what the Jews were worried about here. Uh, but Jesus teaches in this in this illustration that in the kingdom of God, the work of the gospel, the work of Christ, makes everything we are holy. Right? We are fitting and fit for the kingdom because. It is impacting and changing every part of what we are as human beings and making the whole of us holy. So Jesus would have said, I am coming because in my kingdom there is no such thing as a a Sabbath day, as a holy day. I am coming to make all seven days holy. You will worship me every day of the week. There is no such thing as a sacred object like an altar or a temple because I am making you the temple of God. And guess what? You're with yourself everywhere, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, right? There's no such thing as the part of you that's holy and the part of you that's not. You become a temple of God. And more significantly, every part of your being is being made holy through the work of the gospel. You as a whole person are set apart, sanctified, consecrated to God as residents of his kingdom. Uh, this means that in our emotions, in our, in our intellect, in our uh, mental health, in our physical health, right, in our social relationships, all of those are to be sanctified as holy, uh, set apart for God. Uh, what does that look like? Well, let me, it means a lot of things. And what it, what it really means is, in our life, there's really no such thing as the spiritual. Right? And I think where we get in trouble is we, we make the same mistake the Jews did. And we want to compartmentalize our life into the spiritual and the not-so-spiritual, right? And Jesus would say, no, in the kingdom, everything is spiritual. Now, of course, we know this, and if I were to ask you, are you a spiritual being, we would all say yes, and we would all have the sense that, yeah, every part of my life is spiritual. But do we live that out practically? Uh, I would say that probably in a lot of areas we don't. Let me just give, in closing, one illustration of, of an area where I think we have lost sight of the sacredness of our whole being. And that is in our, in our physical body, right? Um, and, and where I see it, uh, just, just, just one illustration of this, one illustration, is what happens when we get sick, right? Anybody been sick lately? Today I had to do like 10 jobs this morning because all the people doing those jobs was, was gone. And uh, so I had to set up sound and other things. And I curse them for being sick, right? Uh, not really. Uh, but they're sick, right? And, and we get sick and our bodies fail. When you get sick, how do you think about illness? How do you think about illness? Well, normally I think about it this way. Well, I got germs, right? And there are biological and chemical things happening in me because, um, you know, because I got a virus. I got invaded by a bacteria that's taking over my body. 
But I have white blood cells, and those white blood cells will go to work, and they'll go to battle against those bad invading bacteria. And, and I'm going to take some Tylenol, and I'm going to take every other kind of drug I can think of to minimize the symptoms, right? Because I hate having headaches and feeling bad. And I love sleeping, so if they knock me out, it's perfect. And that's how I think about sickness. And I know that after a while, my body will combat that. Or I go to the doctor, and they give me you know, some upgraded drugs that will fight it off, and I will be a happy person, right? In other words, I think about sickness purely in common or secular terms. I I never think, wow, you know, I wonder if there is some sin in my life that is contributing to my sickness. Do you think that way? No, because that would be superstition, right? But how did Jesus think about sickness with this woman who was bent over? She clearly had a physical problem, right? She clearly, as I said last week, there are, there are several different medical diagnoses that you could pin on this woman that were true medical problems. But is that how Jesus saw her? Did he, did he think in his mind what she needs is to have her bones straightened and muscles loosened? And did he think of her problem physically? No, he said what? He said she is under a bondage of Satan, right? It is ultimately a spiritual problem. Not just a physical one. Now, was it a physical problem? Yes, right? But its root cause is beyond biology and physics, right? Beyond physical things. It is ultimately a spiritual problem. Uh, do we think about life that way, right? I think oftentimes we don't, right? We, we have our spiritual life and then we have the rest of our life. Well, the kingdom is not to be lived that way. Uh, and I, I would encourage you, you know, it's just, a, again, there's a hundred ways to apply this principle, but your life, every part of it should be wholly consecrated to God. The work of your hands, right? This morning I had to come and I had to do some labor. Could that be worship? Yes. Should it be? Yes, right? Uh, when you are sick, um, maybe we should do like James says, right? James says this, is any of you sick? Let him call the doctor, Oh, no, no, that's not what it says, actually. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. How many times have people called me? I won't say, but it's not very many times, right? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, right? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And get this. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Right? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the doctor. Right? Please call the doctor. But don't see the problem as purely and only physical. It could be a sin problem. It could be you're sick because your life is out of balance and because you're not following godly priorities and you're worn out right? because you're doing a hundred things God didn't ask you to. Right? And you need to confess that. You need to... Ask God, God, am I sick because my life is out of control? Am I sick because there is some bondage of Satan in my life? Right? Is there things going on in my life? Am I depressed? Am I anxious? Am I worried? Am I, uh, you know, on Prozac because of spiritual problems in my life? Right? We, are, we are ultimately spiritual beings. Body, mind, heart, soul, spirit. Uh, and this, the solutions are ultimately spiritual, right? ultimately. Uh, 
the kingdom comes to bring deliverance, right? To bring healing, to bring restoration. Right? Again, I'm not saying we can't use some of these other things, but uh, do we really s- view the kingdom as leaven that wants to come in and penetrate every part of our being with kingdom life and influence? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.